How y'all doing? Oh, you look marvelous. You're looking marvelous. It's so good just to get together and worship with God's people. There's a sweet presence here. And, uh, and to study the word a little bit. It's good stuff. We don't ever pretend like this is church. This is just an expression of church. It's the weekend event. Church happens when you leave this place. And church is about community. And it's about living uh, the, the, the Jesus life. But this is about serving that and equipping for that. So it's a good thing. And it's just it's a special blessing when, when you get together uh, with God's people. My name is Greg Boyd. I'm the senior pastor here at Woodland Hills Church. I saw someone between services who hadn't been here for a while. And one of the first words out of his mouth was, you need a haircut. <laughs> <laughs> well, you know... Maybe, but, but the less, you know, the, the, the older I get, the less I have to work with, so I'm going to work it, all right? And then, you know, it's curly, so it covers up all that bald stuff, you know, or at least sort of covers it up. Anyways, I'm the bushy-haired pastor of this place. One final word I want to say. It's been an interesting week. Um, look, if you've been here for any length of time, any length of time, you know, and I hope you really believe, because it's true, that I really, really, really don't care if you're a Democrat or Republican or a Socialist or a Libertarian or a Communist, I don't care if you're an anarchist. I don't care if you're apathetic. It, it, you know, that has as much to do with the kingdom as what kind of pizza you like. So that's about that. But here's the thing. When you consider the centuries of slavery and abuse that Africans American, African Americans went through in the early years of American history, traded like cattle and often treated worse than cattle, and when you consider the extraordinary measures that were taken by whites in power after the Civil War, after the Reconstruction period, uh, to keep blacks out of power, uh, re coming up with ad hoc rules and drawing district lines differently and, and having, adding on qualifications to keep them out of power. And when you consider the, the inhumanity and the injustice of the Jim Crow uh, era, and when you consider the horrors of the KKK, when you consider that it wasn't all that long ago where in America, legally, a black person was considered just over half human for legal purposes. When you consider the, the, the struggle of the civil rights, when you consider the assassination of Martin Luther King, and when you consider the ongoing racism that is still with us to this day, politics aside, in light of all of that, any day where America elects an African-American to be president is a good day. Can you agree with that? For that reason, amen, a tremendous day. It is something to celebrate that that ceiling has been broken. And, and if, you know, I, I get it, if you don't like his politics, maybe they scare you, got that. But, but if you're not able to celebrate, politics aside, this achievement, then I submit to you that your politics is too important. And, and maybe you better back off of that and see the goodness of this because that in and of itself is a tremendous thing. And like Forrest Gump, that's all I'm going to say about that. Because we're going to talk about the kingdom. We're doing a study here. Uh, we're calling it, it's a great adventure series. We're calling this The Great Reversals. We're looking at some of Jesus' teachings in Luke 14 and 15. And um, we're here in the fifth week of this. And this message is called God is Waiting. It's the story of the prodigal son. It's one that is uh, familiar to many people. And so the prayer I want to pray is that God will give us new hearing. Because uh, sometimes if you hear something too much, you get callous to it. and becomes too ordinary and, you, and you, you don't see the extraordinary beauty that is 
uh, that is there. Uh, So pray with me here for a moment. Lord, I pray for this prayer request first that came in uh, for this person who's getting a spinal tap, and we just pray, Lord, that you'd um, uh, watch over this person and heal this person and give the doctors wisdom with regard to this person. In Jesus' name. And Lord, we pray that you'd give us, all of us here in this auditorium and those who are listening through podcasts or television or some other means, we pray, Lord, you give us ears to hear and eyes to see and a mind to receive and a heart that is open to being cultivated by your spirit. As your word goes forth, let it not return void, but build your kingdom. Confront what needs to be confronted. Uh, Unleash what needs to be unleashed. Bind what needs to be bound. And transform us by the power of your word. We trust you, Holy Spirit, to be doing this because human words in themselves are utterly ineffective. But we surrender ourselves to you, Lord. Be sovereign here. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. What I want to do is just break this uh, passage down really into three sections. And we won't get through the whole parable. Uh, We're going to talk about the elder son uh, next week. Uh, But uh, we'll get through most of it. And so the first two verses read like this. Jesus continued... He's continuing his teaching that, we, that we've been seeing him give the last couple weeks uh, with this theme of what was lost being found. There was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, Father, give me my share of the estate. So the father divided his property between the two sons. Now, you need to know that in first century um, this was the standard practice. When there's no, a noble estate, and this person clearly falls in this category, they had an estate, they were wealthy, uh, it was customary for a son or sons to live on the estate even when they were married. Their families would live on the estate. It was customary for them to run the estate and gradually take over responsibility of the estate as the parents grew feeble. And uh, then when the parents were no longer able to run it, they would care for the parents and, and, and run the whole thing. And then when the father died, the, the uh, estate would be divided up um, and be given sometimes only to the elder son. Uh, sometimes it would be divided with the elder and the younger, but usually that was in the decision-making power of the older son. So when this young man comes to his father and says, uh, Dad, I want my inheritance now. In that cultural context, it's equivalent to saying, Dad, I have no intention of taking care of you when you need me, and I wish you were dead now. I can't wait for you to die to get the goods. I want my goods now. He's treating his father as though he were dead. Uh, It would have been tremendously wounding, and it was a, a, a brazen, insulting thing to do. What made it even more insulting is that this is the younger son. And as I just mentioned... Uh, ordinarily in Jewish culture, in fact, in Jewish law, the inheritance went just to the eldest son, and it was up to the eldest son to decide whether he wanted to share any of it with his younger siblings. So the fact that this man knew that he was going to get half of the estate tells you that his father had already been gracious to him. He, he, He was giving him something he didn't have to give him, and yet despite that, Despite the overtures of the father, the grace and love of the father, this son comes and says, Dad, I don't want to take care of you. Uh, I want my inheritance now. I wish you were dead. Now, the father could have easily coerced the son into staying or at least attempted to do that. He had a lot of power here. I mean, among other things, he he could have threatened to take away the whole inheritance. Or he could have, in fact, taken away the whole inheritance. If you leave, then you're not getting anything. 
And that may have worked to control the son's behavior, but it's very clear that this father isn't interested in just making his son do the right thing. He wants a relationship with his son. And here's the thing we got to see. To have a relationship with somebody means you have to let them go. You have to give them space. You can't coerce a genuine relationship. You can coerce behavior, but you can't coerce a relationship. You can't control a relationship. The father gives him space to walk away because only in giving him space to walk away does he give him space to later choose him. That is what God is like. God is omnipotent, he's all-powerful, he holds all the cards, but he doesn't use that power to control us, to manipulate us, to just do the right thing. He wants a relationship with us. And so he gives us space. He gives us space to hurt him, like this son was hurting his father. He gives us space to screw our lives up, like this guy's gonna screw his life up. He gives us space even to hurt others, Because unless he gave us the space, the relationship couldn't be chosen, and so the relationship couldn't be genuine. Love has to be chosen. It can't be coerced. God is like that. In fact, all the evil and misery in the world is ultimately the result of God giving us space. God giving angels space and God giving humans space to choose either for him or against him. And when we choose against him, we bring evil and destruction in the world and on our own lives. It's ultimately reflective of the space that God gives us. But he has to give us that space if our relationship with him is to be genuine. He lets go. Though it hurts, he lets go. He hopes, he watches, he waits, but he doesn't manipulate, he doesn't control. Now, if that is true of God, how much more true is it of us? If we want genuine relationships with others, we have to give space for people to choose. If we want genuine relationships with others, we can't control. We can't manipulate. I I got a phone call uh, several weeks ago, uh, and I I get these about two or three times a year on average, it seems. And it was from a husband. Once in a while, I'll get it from the wife, but usually it's the husband. And the wife has left the husband, and the wife apparently is attending Woodland Hills Church. And the husband calls up and says, my wife's attending your church. She left me. And you being the pastor of the church, you have to get her back. You have to make her come back to me. You have to tell her what the Bible says, that the man is the head of the household. And you, you have to help her get out of this Jezebel spirit. If I hear the word Jezebel spirit one more time, I'm going to puke. I... It's come to mean basically whenever a woman doesn't do what the guy wants, she's got a Jezebel spirit. I, and my response to callers like this is always pretty much the same. I say, well, look at, uh, sir, um, for one thing, I don't know you and I don't know your wife and I don't know anything about your marriage. For all I know, she left to save her life, so I'm not going to dive in here and act like I know something that I don't know. And the fact that your, your wife is attending the weekend services, that's great, but that means she's given me authority to speak into her life on the weekend, but she hasn't given me any other authority until she enters into a covenant relationship with her. We don't have the right to speak into her life. Uh, and so I'm not going to jump in on this thing, uh, acting like I know something that I don't know and going someplace where I haven't been invited. But you've called me, and so you've kind of invited me to speak into your life. Do you mind if I do? <laughs> Half the time they hang up at that point. <laughs> but what I, what I shared with him and what I try to share with others who have this mindset is, you want to be head of the household, that's really important to you, okay. 
Um, then be head of the household in a Christ-like way. Read Ephesians chapter 5, verses 22 through 30. Uh, verse 22 says, Husbands and wives, submit to one another. That's an interesting statement there. But then Paul speaks to the husband because in the first century, husbands hold all the power. They're the head. And so if it, 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 the first one to relinquish power has got to be the one who holds the power. So he says, Husbands, as the head, then you, you do what Christ did to win, a, to win his wife. Uh, Christ, uh, husbands, love your wife as Christ loved the church and gave himself for her to present to himself a bride without spot or wrinkle. You want to be the head of the household? Do what Jesus did. You want to be, if you want a relationship with your wife, you want your wife back, then don't get big with your words and your oughts and using the Bible like a billy club, like some caveman wanting to get a woman. Uh, rather, you do what Christ did. You win her back. Come under her. Serve her. Uh, sacrifice for her. Don't get big. Get small. Get humble. Confess the wrongs that you've done. At live in the question, how can I serve her? How can I, uh, you know, uh, just surround her with, with, with Christ-like love? Don't come over her, come under her. Don't get big, get small. Do what Christ did. That's what it is to be had. You, you initiate self-sacrifice. You initiate humility. You initiate the service. You bleed for your wife. And maybe in time you'll win her trust and her allegiance back. But you don't build a relationship or fix a relationship or grow a relationship or heal a relationship by getting big. You do it by getting small. You do it by getting Christ-like. He responds, well, she doesn't deserve that. She did this, blah, blah, blah. She's the one to blame, blah, 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 blah. And so I said, well, you know what? For all I know, you're telling the truth because I don't know any, I don't know you, your wife, or your marriage. So maybe you're telling the truth. But you were the one to blame, blah, 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 when, 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 when Jesus died for you. And your one job in life, if you're a follower of Jesus, is to imitate him. So whether she deserves it or not is not the question. Uh, Christ died for the church to present us uh, a bride that was out, without spot or wrinkled. We had a lot of spots and a lot of wrinkles before he died for us. So also, I don't care if, you're, if, if your wife has got a lot of spots and a lot of wrinkles, you lay down your life for her. You live in the question, how can I sacrifice for her? Not exactly what he wanted to hear. But the point is this. If, if we're going to enter into relationships and, and, and uh, grow relationships and then mend relationships, we can't do it by getting big, controlling, oughts, shoulds, Coming over people, we have to do it by getting little and being Christ-like. There's something in fallen human nature that is so profoundly stupid <laughs> where we think we actually can, can make people do the right thing uh, and, and we think we can actually mend relationships by getting big, by using shame, by using whatever power is available. Usually when we get big, what that does is it just takes whatever the, whatever the problem in the marriage is and it makes it go into hiding. You can, if you're big enough and you, can, you know the Bible well and you can use it like a billy club and your voice is bigger and maybe your physical presence is bigger, you can sometimes get people to act the right way, but you can't touch their heart. And whatever bitterness is in their heart, usually you just reinforce that bitterness when you get big. And that just ensures that that bitterness or whatever it is, that mistrust, is going to come out in some other way later on. The reason history is a bloody merry-go-round of cyclical violence is because people chronically, addictively try to fix things by getting big. And we think if we just overpower another, then we're going to help the world. And, and the nations have always had this mindset, if we just get big, well, then that will bring about good change. And in the long run, it never does. It maybe suppresses stuff for a while, but it comes back. That's how nations operate. That's how the world's going to operate. But that's not how we're to operate. It's especially in our marriages. You know, in Genesis 3, the Lord, after the fall, he declares woefully 
that because of this fall, the wife is going to try to control the husband, but the husband is going to lord over the wife. Uh, that is not God's great prescription for marriage, folks. That's not, he's not saying this is the way he wants it. He's saying, ooh, this beautiful thing I had is now ruined, and this is how it's going to be. And in fact, that is how it has been throughout our fallen history. But that's not what we're to be aspiring toward, where the man is supposed to rule over the woman, and the woman's supposed to be trying to manipulate the man. No, that's the fall. What it is to have a kingdom marriage is you're moving in the opposite direction. You want a kingdom marriage, you look at Ephesians 5, submit to one another, come under one another, quit doing this top over game, and you start submitting to one another. But it's part of our fallen matrix that we think that somehow getting big is what's going to solve things when in fact it only prolongs things and often just makes it worse. The omnipotent God, who has all the power in the world, wants a relationship, a genuine love relationship with us. But he doesn't do it by flexing his omnipotent muscle. He gives us space. He gives us space. He makes himself vulnerable because it hurts him when we choose against him, but he gives us space to do just that. Because without that space, without that letting go, uh, we wouldn't have a, the possibility of genuinely choosing him and coming into a relationship with him. And then even when we choose against him, he doesn't flex his omnipotent muscle to try to control us, manipulate us. He gets small. He doesn't get big, he gets small. He becomes a human being. He dies on the cross. He takes upon our sin. He takes upon our guilt in order to restore us, in order to win our heart back. That's how you do relationships. And if it's true for God, how much more true is it of us? For all of our relationships, we have to let people go. If God lets people go, we have to let people go. We have to give people freedom. And unless we're doing that, we can't enter into a genuine relationship. We don't do it by getting big, we do it by getting small. Now, of course, when parents have small children, there's times where you have to get big and, and lay down the law, got that. And to love your neighbor as yourself presupposes that you love yourself and you're not doing anyone any favor. Uh, if they're getting big in abusive ways and you're sitting there being small, letting them being big over you, sometimes you gotta walk away from that. I got that. But in all of our relationships, whether it's with our children as they're growing up and the older they get, the more true this is, you got to let go of some of the control that you had when they were five, when they're 15, and when they're 25. Uh, and and it, with our spouses and with our neighbors and with our friends, the way to enter into relationships and grow relationships and heal relationships and fix relationships isn't by getting big. It's by reflecting the character of God and getting small, giving space and getting small to win trust, to win love, to win relationship. Okay, moving on, verse 13. Not long after that, the son who got his space walked away. The youngest son got together all he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he spent everything, there was a, a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. He went and hired himself out to a citizen of that country, who sent him to his fields to feed pigs. He's working on a pig farm. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, when he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired servants have food to spare? And here I am starving to death. I will set out and go back to my father and say to him, and now he starts practicing a speech. Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired servants. 
And so rehearsing that speech, he got up and went to his father. So here's his son. I don't know how old he is, but he's not that old. And when you're young, you think that a little bit of money is a whole lot of money. You have this idea that, that uh, you know, it's kind of endless. And so he gets this very substantial inheritance, and he probably feels like his wealth is limitless. And so he goes out and lives wildly. Now, the phrase wild living doesn't necessarily mean immoral living. It has the connotation, as, as Scott points out in the prayer journal, it has the connotation of recklessness. He just didn't think about what he was doing. He wanted it, he spent it. So it's like a lot of Americans. You, you know, just reckless. You know, you have a budget, you know, you want it. I see, I want. I have enough money on my credit card, I buy. Well, that's kind of what he did. And you do that for very long, and guess what? I don't care how wealthy you are, you run out of money. So he runs out of money, and just when he runs out of money, a famine hits the land. So he has to hire himself out to a pig farmer to go out in the fields and feed the pigs. Now, now for a young Jewish man, this would have been a really dishonorable way of, of being employed. Uh, to traditional Jews in the first century, pigs were unclean. They were so ceremonially unclean. That's in the Old Testament. They, they never would eat pork. They didn't like to be around pork. They didn't like the smell of pork. Uh, they, you know, they, they didn't want to have to look at pigs. And they certainly didn't want to feed pigs. And here this guy is walking around in pig manure uh, feeding pigs. And he gets, apparently they weren't paying him very much because he's so hungry, he starts being hungry for the pig food. A sorry situation. And so finally he comes to his senses. God lets us go, but his hope is always that we'll come to our senses and use every major failure in our life to teach us. That's the whole point of them, to teach us to come to our senses about where home really is. Now, the first part and the last part of this parable is, 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 is to help us identify with God, to see what God is like. But this part, the purpose is for us to identify with the son, the prodigal son who walks away. We are that son. Now, for some people here, I imagine, or some people listening through podcasts, I imagine that would be a pretty easy identification. I imagine some folks here knew God for a while, and then, for whatever reasons, you walked away from God. And you went your own way, and you did your own, th own thing, and you squandered God's blessing, and you screwed your life up royally, and you found yourself on a pig farm hungry for pig food or something equivalent to that. And after you had blown a lot and squandered a lot and come to a lot of pain and maybe hurt a lot of people in the process, you come to your senses that you need God. And so you don't have any trouble identifying with his son. Others maybe are easy, able to identify with the son easily, not because you overtly rejected God, but because you, you just screwed up big time. Uh, and you took something that was very, very precious and you squandered it. You flushed it down the toilet like this guy did his wealth. And you brought a lot of pain on yourself and a lot of pain on others. There's a a pastor friend of mine uh, who's not in this area, so don't think you know who I'm talking about, even if there are parallels in this area. This is not that guy. You don't know this guy. But uh, there's been enough episodes like this that you probably have heard something similar to this. But this guy's 45 years old. That all of a sudden spells trouble. And uh, 22 years into his marriage, he decides that he never really loved his wife, and his wife never really loved him, and they shouldn't have gotten married. They didn't know what they were doing when they got married. They can look back and see all the red flags that God was sending up that should have kept them from getting married, but they got married anyways. And uh, now he's, he's just realizing that he's not fulfilled, ever been fulfilled in his marriage, and he's never been fulfilled in his ministry, and, and this is just uh, painful for him. And... Um, the secretary of the church, 22-year-old, she, she gets his jokes and she thinks he's sexy and she thinks he's cute and he, she thinks that he's super and, and, and she understands him so well. They're just soulmates, you know, it was destined to be. So he ends up leaving his wife, leaving his two kids and running off with the 22-year-old. 
starts wearing a cowboy hat, smoking Marlboro cigarettes, and driving, driving a Harley. Nothing against those things in particular, but, but this was a major change for him. It's, a midlife, it's called midlife crisis. We, we ought to have a training, some kind of program that guys have to go through at the age of 39 to warn them what's coming because I've seen this pattern so often. Man, so many things crash in the 40s. So here's this guy is. And it usually takes about a year or two, sometimes less, for the guy to come to his senses and wake up one morning and say, my God, what have I done? He flushed his family down the toilet, flushed his relationship with his wife and his kids down the toilet, flushed his ministry down the toilet, flushed his reputation down the toilet. And he's found out that the grass is not greener on the other side. It looked greener from the side you were on. You just traded your bag of problems. And these problems are worse. So he comes to his senses. And sometimes when people come to their senses after they've blown something sky high, flushed it down the toilet, sometimes you can go back and there's a family still waiting for you, your wife still waiting for you. Sometimes not. God's always there. But families and wives, and uh, that's a little bit different story sometimes. But see, we, that kind of person would have no trouble identifying with the prodigal son. And maybe, maybe you've done something like that. Uh, maybe you've, you, you've, you've flushed a, a college scholarship down the toilet because of your drinking problem, or you flushed uh, a career down the toilet because of your gambling problem, or you flushed relationships down the toilet because of your petty selfishness or narcissism or what have you, and you have no trouble identifying with this prodigal son. Something that was very precious, you flushed down the toilet, only to realize later on that it was really precious. And that's how you come to your senses. That's how you come to your senses and start walking in a different way. But I think if we're honest, if we're all honest, we'll have to see, unless you are, unless you are super duper saint, and maybe you are, but all of us can and should identify with this son. Because unless you're super duper saint, I'm guessing that you flush, you have flushed and maybe continue to flush a lot of your life down the toilet. We're just so used to it, we don't realize it. We squander life. We think, we act as though it's going to go on forever, and it's not. It's finite. How much life, really, do we flush down the toilet? Because we hold on to petty gripes. How much time do we waste with our petty angers and our petty grudges and our petty obsessions and our petty worries? How much life do we flush down the toilet? Because we get it. Involved in stupid entertainment distractions when our grandson or our son or daughter are looking to us to play pony with them in cars and there's a memorable moment waiting to happen, but we're too busy doing something stupid to even notice that. How much life do we flush down the toilet? Because we walk around half awake and half distracted and we don't look into each other's eyes and take the time to appreciate one another and, and seize opportunities to create memories and, and to enter into deeper love relationships. How, how much life do we squander? Because we settle for mediocre memories marriages that are maybe safe because we're afraid to confront issues that will take us deeper and have a satisfying marriage? How much life do we squander because we settle for mediocrity in our life in general, because it's safe and secure, it's risk-free, when God is calling us to a full and exciting life that is living on the edge? How much life do we squander because we settle for being church attenders rather than radical kingdom disciples? How much life do we squander? Because we are too busy working too much to get stuff we don't need when there are relationships that, that we do need, but we're squandering them to chase after the American dream. What will it take for us to come to our senses and to wake up where fullness of life really lies? And God is calling us to wake up, to come to our senses, to stop chasing the pig feet of the American dream, to come and sit at his banquet table and feast on his goodness. He's calling us to realize where fullness of life really is, what we're really hungry for. 
If you're not hungry, it's because you got used to eating pig food, the pig food of the culture, the pig food of the petty little satisfactions that the world offers us. But God's saying, wake up. What you're really hungry for is me. He wants us not to just visit his estate once in a while, but to take up residence in his estate. How much life do we squander because we think about him once in a while and maybe talk to him once in a while, but we don't integrate him into our life. We, we walk with a mindset as though he were dead. Yes, we believe in him, but we don't invite him into our decision-making process day by day. We don't include him in our awareness day by day. We don't cultivate fellowship with him day by day. And all the while, God is saying, don't leave the estate. Don't leave my presence. Jesus says, abide in me and I in you. He doesn't say, come visit me once in a while. No, he wants us to take up residence in him, to live at his table, to be receiving the fullness of life that comes from continually beholding his glory and living in his love and living in his presence and aware of his presence and submitting all of our decisions to him. Fullness of life comes from knowing him and from walking in his ways as he shows you his ways. Fullness of life comes from entering into community where you start doing the New Testaments one another and you live together and you carry one another's burdens and you seek God's will together and you serve together. Fullness of life comes from partnering with God to carry out his will on earth as it is in heaven. And as you walk in that, you grow in that, you develop a taste and an appetite for that, you're coming home to dad. You're coming home to dad. And God is saying, don't satisfy yourself with pig's food when, when at my table there's fullness of life. All of us can identify with that, son. Amen. All of us, in different ways, squander. Squander our, our life and um, flush it down the toilet. And God is saying, wake up. Walk fully awake. Walk present. Look into one another's eyes. Don't take anything for granted. It might be gone in a minute. Live fully, live with awareness of God's presence. Sit at his table and feast. We are all that prodigal son and God's calling us all home. Then the third part of this just says this. Number three, Luke, uh, starting with uh, verse 20, 15 verse 20. The son comes to his senses. He practices his little message and he starts walking home. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, Father, and now he starts his speech, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But he doesn't get to the next part because the father interrupts him and says to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fatted calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost, but now he is found. And so they began to celebrate. Let's watch this uh, little video we found on YouTube. But you don't succeed 
When you get what you want but not what you need When you feel so tired but you can't sleep Stuck in rivers And the tears come streaming down your face When you lose something you can't replace When you love someone but it goes to waste Could it be
God is like that. And forgiveness is the most beautiful act uh, in the world and in all eternity. The son came to his senses on the pig farm. So he starts the long journey home. Somewhere along the line, I'm sure his mule or camel got sold. He doesn't have anything. He's starving to death. He's walking home. It was a distant country, so it might have taken some time. I'm suspecting a couple of months at least. Plenty of time to rehearse his, his, his uh, little speech. Hungry, skinny, tired, lonely, walking home. Turns out the father was watching and waiting for him. He gives us space to leave, but he never stops caring. He never stops loving. He never stops longing. He never stops hurting. The father was watching. Uh, often in, in those days, the, the wealthier uh, estates were on hilltops that could overlook countrysides. And so I picture this person's uh, plantation, the father's plantation or mansion on top of a hill. And he's looking down a road, the one road that leads to this plantation. And uh, a long way off, it says, a long way off. He sees his son coming. Maybe he recognizes a distinctive walking gait of the, of the guy or, or something, but somehow he recognizes that as his son. And it says that he ran to him. And we saw here what it looks like for God to run. You need to understand in the first century, it makes it even a little bit more forceful. Uh, running was considered uh, a degrading act. Noble people didn't run. Peasants, commoners ran when the nobles, when the elite told them to, but a, a person of nobility, a person, a wealthy person like this didn't normally run. You look foolish doing that. On top of it, the only way to run back then was to go barefoot because you, they didn't have, Nike hadn't been invented yet. The sandals they wore weren't, like, weren't the kind you could run in, so he has to run down this dirt road uh, barefoot to come to his son. And on top of that, the clothing, especially for nobility, was a, a long dress a skirt, and uh, it wasn't really conducive for running. To run, this man would have had to lift that skirt up, running down the road, get a picture of it, <laughs> looking like a total fool. But see, he doesn't care. He doesn't care because his son, his son is coming home. And the son immediately begins this speech that he's been rehearsing for a couple months. It's got to be good because he's thinking it's going to be a hard sell to get any role back on this estate. And so he starts his, his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am not worthy to be called your son. But if you finish the last part of the sermon, we're not told about it, or the last part of his speech, because he probably said it into the chest of his father who was now squeezing him. No speech was going to be given now. The father comes and he just embraces him. The father kisses him. The father orders for the robe of the family to be wrapped around him and the, the, the signature ring of the family to be put on his hand and for sandals to be put on his feet and for a party to be thrown. God is like that. Now think about this. This son who had hurt him so deeply, wishing he was dead. I don't want anything to do with you. I'm not going to care about you. When you get old and need me, I won't be there. I want you dead. Give me my inheritance now. That son who had said that, who had squandered half of the inheritance, uh, this father is not as wealthy as he once was. Half of it's been blown to the wind, flushed down the toilet. And the only one to blame here is the son. There can be no excuses about this. There's no one else to blame. He's totally responsible for all of this. And everyone would say in, that the father has the right to be angry and wrathful and, and, and to come down on him. But instead, the only thing that's said is that the father had compassion on his son. How you got to the loser state you're in isn't that much of a concern for God as long as you learn from it. 
However you got there, God has compassion on the fact that you are there. And so the father runs and embraces him, kisses him. Not a word is said about his guilt. Not a word is said about the past. There's no speech to be given. There's no groveling here. There's no work your way back, repayment plan kind of a thing. There's no second class status being offered here or accepted here. Rather, instantaneously and joyfully, the son is fully accepted as is. The only thing the son receives is a kiss and an embrace and a reinstatement party. God is like that. That is what God is like. He's a God who gives us space to love him, but therefore gives us space to hurt him. He gives us space to squander our lives and stupid living and to waste all of his blessings. He gives us space to do that, but he's a God He's a God who, who, who makes himself vulnerable to be hurt. But he's a God who, even when he's hurt, watches and waits and hopes and lures. And then he's a God when the moment we start coming home, he runs towards us. He doesn't wait for us to get all the way to him. He runs towards us. He's a God who runs, even if it looks silly. He's a God who embraces, even if it's irrational, a God who kisses, even if it doesn't make any sense. A God who puts the ring back on our finger and says, now you're my own. Uh, without regrets, without speech, without groveling, now you're my own. Without any repayment program, he's a God who won't accept a second-class status for anybody. I don't care what you've squandered, what you've wasted, how you've hurt yourself, how you've hurt God, how you've hurt others. When you turn back, when you come home, you're reinstated. No regrets, no groveling, as is instantaneous, joyous, full acceptance. He's that kind of God. He is that beautiful. And if there's any part of your brain that doesn't agree with that, it's wrong. This is on the authority of Jesus Christ. God is like this. This is the same God that's revealed on Calvary. When God runs to us, it looks like Calvary. God is that beautiful. God is that great. That God is that gracious. God is that merciful. And I don't care how you got to the conclusion you got to that. That's not the whole story. But I'm telling you, on the authority of Jesus Christ, God is really like that. And it's so important that we see that because that's what wins our heart. The father is winning the son's heart back. He's getting a real relationship back. It couldn't have happened if he would have coerced the son. I didn't have to go through all this pain, but in the case of this son, that's how it did go. But when the, son, when the father welcomes him back, do you think that this son's ever going to want him dead again? Do you think the, the son's ever going to want to uh, not take care of him again? Ever want to be dishonorable again? I don't think so. He wins our heart by his beauty. Do you see his beauty? Do you receive his beauty? Sometimes people say, well, wait a minute. I was always taught that you got to repent before God will run to you and embrace you. And, and once in a while I get people asking me, why don't you preach more about repentance? And what they mean by repentance is this kind of mea culpa, mea culpa for those of you from Catholic backgrounds where you kind of loathe yourself and, and, and there's got to be this groveling and there's got to be this sorrow and tears and, and all of this. And, and they don't hear that from me all that often. So they say, why don't you preach repentance more? And I submit to you that I preach repentance every message I preach. Because repentance isn't a word about an emotion. It's not a word about speech. It's a speech you got to give or, or a certain prayer you got to pray. This man repented because the word repentance simply means metanoia, to turn, to turn. And this guy turned. The minute you come to your senses and get off the pig farm and start coming home, you've repented. That is repentance. It's deciding to live a different way. And look at this guy's motives weren't even that good. He was just hungry. 
Now, I'm sure as he got back on the estate, he fell in love with his father more and more. You see, you grow when you start to repent, when you turn, when you walk. You grow in that. You maybe feel remorse for the things that you've done, but, but often that comes after you turn, not as a precondition for your turning. He just made his way back. That is turning. When you decide this life on the pig farm isn't the life that, that I want to live, it's not the life God has for me, and you start coming home, that's repentance. And what you need to know is that the moment you do that, your heavenly Father is running to you, lifting up his skirt, hollering for a celebration to begin because you were lost and now you're found. And so I want to end just by asking the Holy Spirit to teach us and to seal on our hearts what needs to be sealed. If you want to close your eyes and pray as I'm leading us through this little exercise, you can do that. You don't have to. Whatever works. But here, just open yourself up to the Holy Spirit. Holy Spirit, three questions here. Show us what our real picture of God is, not what your theology is. That's your theology. How do you really, really envision God? Do you believe he's a God who runs toward you? A God who, when he runs towards you, looks like Calvary. And that that is for you. No ifs, ands, buts, or takebacks. No matter how much you've squandered, no matter how much you've wasted, however bad it was, and it can get real bad, it still holds. He runs towards you. Is that your picture of God? And if there's any part of you that... that, that isn't comfortable with that. They can't embrace that. Holy Spirit, just ask the Holy Spirit to come and tear that stronghold down so you can really begin to behold the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ and be touched by that life and therefore begin to live in the glory of God, the shininess and beauty of his love and peace and fullness of life and joy. What is your real picture of God? Really? Secondly, in what ways have you squandered life? Are you squandering life? Holy Spirit, help us to be honest. How are we flushing this precious, precious, finite wealth called life that we have? How do we squander it? How do you squander it? How do I squander it? And Lord, help us to be profoundly unsatisfied with pig feed and to hunger for you. Wake us up. Bring us to our senses. Holy Spirit, will you remind us to look into each other's eyes and never take each other for granted? Will you remind us of what is important and what's not important and to let go of what's not important in order to embrace what really is important? God, help us to, have a, to live life awake, to wake up. God, help us to not settle for mediocrity and to live in the middle, in the safe zone all the while. But God, to be following your will and to be living on the edge and investing life with passion. Wake us up, Lord. Kindle in us a hunger daily to come home and to abide on your estate, to live on your estate. To think about you, Lord, and to integrate you into every decision we make and every relationship that we have. To be mindful of your presence. Holy Spirit, teach us what we need to, to know. And finally, I want to ask the Holy Spirit to reveal to us relationships that we have that we're trying to protect ourselves perhaps or trying to get our way by being big rather than doing the Christ-like thing and becoming small. Holy Spirit, help us to be honest with ourselves. Are there people 
that we are trying to control that we need to give space to. We're scared. Maybe you're scared. If you give space, they might leave. If God gives them space, you have to give them space, not out of apathy, but out of love. If they're not choosing to be there, then their being there is not really being there. It's not a real relationship. Other relationships, maybe marriage relationships, maybe with our older children, maybe with friends that we're trying to control by being big, by using external means to manipulate, to get what we want. Will you let that go? Holy Spirit, give us the courage to let people go. We are not their God. We are not their Lord. You are. And to surrender our loved ones over to you. They are not ours to possess. Help us, Lord God, not to be big, but to become small. To win relationships through our love, our faithfulness, our sacrifice. To come under people and not to come over people. Before I close, I'm going to ask the prayer team to come forward. And if you're here this morning and maybe you've been out on the pig farm and you want to come home, I want you to come up here when we're dismissed. Or if there's any other need that you want to pray for, I want you to come up here and just pray with these folks or maybe you just want to kneel at the altar. That's, that's available. But Lord, as we leave here, I pray that, you, Lord, that you'd open our eyes to always be beholding your glory. Thank you for being the beautiful God that you are. Words can't say it and we can't say it enough. You are beautiful. You are beautiful beyond description. For being a God who runs towards us, who embraces us, even when we're all dirty and smelly and hungry and smell like pig's poop, Lord, you run to us and embrace us even when we don't deserve it. You run to us, you embrace us, you sacrifice for us, you welcome us home as your children. Thank you for being that God. Lord, I pray that as we leave here that that would be a, a vision of ours that would win our allegiance to do your will, to carry out your will on earth as it is in heaven, to live Christ-like life, Christ-like lives in all of our relationships, even towards our enemies, as you build your kingdom through us and in us. In Jesus' name we pray and all God's people said, Amen. God bless you folks. Go out and build the kingdom.